I'm Christopher Calloway, and this is Creator Talks, the show where I interview writers and artists working in comic books and in other mediums. Rags Morales is back. He's working with Valiant on the new Bloodshot series, Rising Spirit. Rags worked for Valiant way back in the day, back in the 90s. He worked on Turok, he worked on Geomancer, and a few other titles. So Rags is going to talk about those early days at Valiant, who he met, brushes with greatness, and he's also going to talk about the state of the comic book industry back in the 90s when the implosion occurred, and also what are some of the benefits and challenges working as a freelance artist. Rags attended Joe Kruber's School of Cartoon and Graphic Art Design, and he also taught some classes there. So he talks about attending school there, who he went to school with, and also taking some classes with Joe Kubert. Now just a warning, this episode is rated E for explicit, so if there are kids in the room or you're at work, put on your headphones. But I'll tell you what, it's a riot. I laughed my butt off. And Rags is on the way to the bank when we begin our conversation, so you may hear some door opening and closing and some bells, but that's because he's getting his debit card replaced. And plus today, I have a Creator's Corner with Dawn Griffin about a new project she's working on, a project aimed at kids. And we talked about this during Free Comic Book Day at the Comic Book Shop at 1855 Marsh Road in Wilmington, Delaware, where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. And the Comic Book Shop is the sponsor of today's episode. So please join me now for a great conversation with Rags Morales. And I start with the question, how did he get the name Rags? Here now on Creator Talks. Welcome to Creator Talks. Thank you for having me. I'd like to start with just asking you, and you've probably been asked this before a thousand times. Where did the name come from? Exactly. (laughs) All right, so I'm in art school, right? And for my humor class, I have to come up with a character for a daily syndicated strip. And in this particular class, it was more about writing than actual drawing. I mean, we did our cartoons, but they were secondary to the idea that he wanted us to pay attention to where we are outside and take notes and interesting things or funny things that people say, jot them down and then try to come up with a daily strip. Now, of course, when you write, it's all about writing what you know. And at 19, I didn't know a fucking thing. Can I say fucking thing? Sure you can. Okay. (laughs) You just did. (laughs) All right. So I didn't know a, a fucking thing. I just wrote about stupid shit that I knew, you know, I knew about hanging out with my friends and drinking and my mother who uh, was single at the time and dating, my dumb dog. I mean, literally, this was probably the dumbest animal I've ever met. It wasn't even my dog. It was my sister's dog, but she wasn't taking care of him. And I was, his name was Max. He was a, a mid-sized poodle, you know, one of those larger poodles. Stupid as a bag of rocks. So anyway, I figured if I'm going to write about what I know, I'm going to write about me. And, and what I knew was that I wanted to become published. So it was about me and my friends. And I called it Rags to Riches. And the dogs was Patches. My mother's boyfriend was Bobby. I used to call him Booby. And I just it was it was it was really just a, an awful, awful thing to have to do. But the name stuck. And as a pen name, I felt it was better than, you know, using my real name. And. And I kind of liked the way it sounded. So I just, uh, you know, and it kind of a wink and a nod to the character's ambition to become somebody, I guess is really what it boils down to. So why did you decide to do art? Because it's the only thing I'm good at. <laughs> I, was, I was a fairly good athlete. I was I went to baseball camp and I used to, I used to play good baseball. I was fast, I had a strong arm. 
and my father t- uh, sent me to baseball camp in the hopes that uh, I would uh, I would become better, and I did. I was actually uh, I was actually pretty good, but I don't think I was good enough to make it to uh, an athletic scholarship. And to be honest with you, after the first year, I realized my coach didn't know anything about baseball, and I knew more about baseball. I mean, I was taught by major leaguers and college coaches in baseball camp. So when I got back, I realized this guy was completely clueless on the roles of everybody in the batting lineup and things like that. As a leadoff hitter, he tried to get me to pull the ball, and I didn't understand that at all. And I quit. That's all the money. I'm going to be an artist because it's what I'm really good at. And I suck at everything. I, you know, I can't sing. I don't play musical intru- instruments. I, uh, I'm thoroughly creative, very immersed in, in all forms of art, but I'm just only really good at drawing. So why not? But what's the most difficult thing about doing it for you? What's the biggest challenge? Oh, you know, it's the worst thing you can do is when your hobby becomes a career. It's the worst thing you can do to yourself. You know, it's, uh, it's no longer yours. It's not yours to do when you want to as you feel like it. It's no longer yours to do what you want to do in a style that you want to do it in. To have to do it because a publisher wants it or the, the fan base demands it, you do it because you get paid, you know. I, I used to teach at the Kubert School, the Joe Kubert School of Cartooning and Graphic Arts. I used to teach story adaptation and basic drawing, too. I told the students, I said, let me tell you something about this particular industry. You get paid for the things you hate to draw because you'd be drawing for free otherwise. You know, drawing buildings and tedious things like making sure all the windows are the same size and bullshit like that. I hate that. I hate drawing guns. I hate anything with a ruled line. You know, Phil Noto, you know, he's really big on architecture and especially like really modern look and stuff like that. I remember I was in Germany. I was talking to uh, Alex Bubenheimer and showing us both Berlin's East and West. And he was saying how Phil Noto really loved the communist side, you know, he really, really, really loved East Berlin. We were looking around. It was so, to me, sterile, you know, it was very straight and straight lines, very vertical, very horizontal. And I was like, oh, goodness. I, 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 yeah, I mean, I love Phil. Phil's a terrific artist. He's really good when it comes to like really clean stuff. And I guess it appeals to his sensibilities artistically. But for me, now, nah, man, give me something with teeth. Just so if I have to draw with rulers or straight lines i try to avoid that as much as possible man you give me archaic stuff i love that archaic stuff is fun you know uh, swords and sorcery i love native americans you know that kind of thing love drawing jungles and and things like that but you know give me a cityscape and i'd rather throw up in my own mouth well you know you mentioned teaching at the kubert school uh you know story adaptation now you also went there for a while i took some classes there what did you take while you were there I took all the courses that were available. We took anatomy, we took animation, we took uh, design, we took layout class, methods and materials, painting, color theory, basic drawing, just everything necessary. See, the one thing about this particular industry, I mean, people want to say that it's an immature art form. And I guess some of, some of the subject matter could run that way. It's become much more mature since the 60s, but a lot of people don't realize that. They think, you know, they think comic books right away, they think Adam West. And with good reason, because that's the pejorative. But the fact of the matter is, it's one of the hardest disciplines to do because it incorporates everything, including narrative and storytelling and being able to work with others and making it uh, viable for uh, print and other forms of commercialism. And, you know, even thinking in terms, if I do this costume, maybe they'll make a doll out of it or something like that or, you know, whatever. It's uh, it's an awful lot of thinking, an awful lot of hats involved. It's, it's a very, very difficult uh, job. I don't know if I answered your question. I'm busy trying to get out of the car. No, that answered it. When you were going to the Kubert School, 
Who was in your classes? Anybody that we've heard of? Any classmates? Of Tom yours? Rainey, a uh, year after me. Pete Fitzgerald was uh, an artist for Crack Magazine for a while. He was really good at, at funny stuff. Great sense of humor. Uh, Richard Space did, I think, a couple of things at Valiant, but nothing long-lasting in terms of years of service. Tom Rainey, he went there relatively around the same time. His wife, Gina Going, she and I went to high school together. And she was there, and she was a colorist for uh, for many years. But I didn't graduate, actually. I went two years. But I didn't you know, graduate with Lee Weeks or anybody like that, or Tom Mandrake. I don't even know if Tom even went to that school or not, but... I know a son and his daughter went, and his son's there now. His daughter's actually teaching there. Now, did you take any classes that were taught by Joe himself? Joe, at the time, was a third-year teacher, and like I said, it only went for two years. He did substitute a few times, which was great. I really enjoyed it when he substituted because he had a great way of communicating an idea very simply and concisely, and uh, it would stick with you. You know, it was just... Uh, <laughs> When I taught, it's very difficult to conceive what it is you're thinking in a way that's verbal to somebody else. The one cool thing about teaching is that it's a tremendous shit checker, you know, because you do things and you don't realize how much of it is on autopilot until you actually have to analyze it and regurgitate it. So the, the cool thing about Joe's is his ability to communicate an idea. And when I, when I became a teacher, I found out how really difficult that really is. But, you know, he was, he was the master of brevity. And, uh, and I really liked Joe. And I miss him terribly. Good teacher and a good man. Back in the day, you used to work at Valiant. And, of course, you did Turok and Arch and Armstrong, Geomancer, and Bloodshot did an issue. Now, that was after Schroeder was out. Was Barry Windsor Smith there when you started, or was he already gone? I met him for the first time there. And briefly, he offered me a cup of coffee. I said, no, thank you. It was a little late in the day for me. Uh, and that was basically it. I think those are the... Uh, he gave me four words. <laughs> <laughs> Who else did you meet there? For the first time, Jim Shooter. I got into an elevator, and I had a habit at the time. We're talking, you know, about my mid-20s, you know, like 26, 27. And I had a habit at the time of walking with my head down all the time, you know. You know how it is. You look up for two seconds, and you keep your head down. And as I got into the elevator to go to the Valiant offices, I looked at the most brilliant and largest pairs of shoes I've ever seen <laughs> in my life. Because Jim's a tall dude. I mean, he's like, you know six foot 13 and he had these beautiful i guess they were italian you know just beautifully polished shoes and i'm looking down at these feet and i follow them up and it's like all of a sudden it's like you know you're panning up like you're looking at lurch from you know the annals family all of a sudden because even he wasn't even paying attention to me he was also looking down <laughs> but uh, i didn't say anything to him you know because i was uh, i was a little you know shocked just, you know, all of a sudden there's Jim Shooter, you know. But Jim and I over the years have gotten quite friendly, and I hope to work with him eventually. We've talked about it a number of times. We have many of the same ideas as far as storytelling goes, and, and I'd love to work with him again. But, you know, I met Jim Shooter. I met Bob Layton. Bob Layton was probably the first guy I met. He bought a double-page spread that I was working on just for shits and giggles. It was no assignment. It was something I was doing because at the time I was moving from D.C. to Valiant. I was trying to get familiar with the Valiant universe. Yeah, he ended up buying it from me, which was nice because it was around Christmas time, so I made some Christmas money. Yeah, that became a, uh, a, a trading card. One of the, the top training cars they were doing back in the day. Just a group shot of the of, of what was mostly the universe at the time. You know, Solar and Magnus and Archer and Armstrong and Shadow Man and everybody else. It was Bob and Jim and uh, Barry were the ones that I met. And, of course, you know, 
you know, Fred Pierce and Steve Masarski and all the other uh, brass. So you were in the office a lot then because you, as you said, had moved up there. Was it difficult to move at that time or being younger, you didn't have that many things to take with you? Uh, no, I was moving over from D.C. That's just moving from one company to the next. See, we work at home. So there is, there's no office to go to. Cross-gen for a while they, uh, and with good results too. They actually had studio environment where people would show up in the offices to work. But that kind of thing is just not feasible because the talent is just too spread out these days. At the time, I was living in New Jersey, and the Valiant offices were in New York. So they, I, you know, I was uh, living in Elizabeth, New Jersey, and I, uh, I would just, you know, take the train into the city, walk up to the offices, and uh, you know, I'd, I'd about you know once a week, like every Friday or so, usually around payday. Those bullpens tend to be virtual. There's not too many places that actually have people on site. I mean, I think Jim is one of the few people that for Valiant and for Defiant actually had people in the office. Not not everyone, of course, not a lot of the pencilers and inkers, but the knobs row where the colorists, letters, they were all on there on site. Yeah, and um, maybe now, but back then that was not uncommon. You know, DC ran the same way. Uh, everybody, it was the production department, you know, just where, you know, some lettering was done, not the letterers work, but... You know, a lot of the cleanup work and a lot of that camming the uh, uh, the uh, the artwork. You get the artwork in, and then they take it on a stat camera, make stats of it like that on some really heavy paper. And you know, we're talking like really analog stuff. Um, no computers at the time, and everything was hands on. So hands on that uh, Valiant back then would actually do the production on the artwork itself. So I'd get back artwork with cuts of exacto blades cutting through it. It was actually kind of annoying. You know, I was uh, I was a little upset about that. And they used regular Xerox uh, machines at the time because it was cost cutting. You know, so it's, it's, it's expensive to have uh, an office in New York City. And today you have artists that can work totally from digital. You know, they don't even have anything physical that they could even sell, you know, like their own original art. They do it all on a tablet and send it over. How do you like to work? Do you still use the ink and brush or um, a little bit of both? I was born in 1966. I'll let you do the math. Okay. <laughs> Computers were something that were, you know, Atari 2600. I was part of that generation. I really don't know a lot about computers. I do. It's mostly point and click. And I'm amazed that I could, you know, drag and paste and cut and things like that. So maybe I do know a little production, but... Beyond that, no, I don't know enough about computers. Everything I do is on paper. And in fact, if I um, ever do any self-publishing, which is what I'm hoping to do one day, I'm going to be doing everything right on the paper, lettering, all of it right there on the paper, except for the coloring. Color uh, tends to move when you do it physically on, on paper because it's a wet medium. And I don't want to mess around with uh, inks that could uh, be unreliable. Um, back in the day, inks used to be like really solid, really black. And very waterproof, but these days is a lot of thinned out ink that's just not good. Back when you worked at Valiant, the comic market was going through transition. You know, there was the boom and then the bust. And did you feel any of the impact from that? I know you weren't there in the office all the time, but how were you impacted by that? There was such a boom. I mean, I remember there are these basement publishers that were selling 50,000 copies. That's a healthy book by today's standards. Uh, to sell 50,000 units monthly. I mean, at the time, my, my first big hit, if you want to call it that, nobody actually read the book because all they did was just buy it and then bag it and no one even opened it. Because God forbid it should get air. They sold over 300,000 units of Geomancer number one. And I was like, wow, that's really cool. You know, and it was nice royalties too. But, you know, that kind of thing is it's so inconsistent. You don't know when it's going to get better or when it's going to get worse. You just kind of hope that you, uh, you have something that people like. But if people were going to buy it and not even open it, then... You know, fuck it. Who, you know, <laughs> who gives a shit? And it would be exactly cut in half the second issue. If you sold a hundred, you know, three hundred thousand units, then you had one hundred fifty thousand units the next one, and then after that, if you're lucky, if you had uh, fifty units, 
sold among it was just it was infuriating really because you know we thought we were doing good work we thought we were doing some really good stories and some interesting characters very different and people were excited about it but you know the death of superman basically killed superhero comics in general really you know because that's what created the boom that an image and then it went bust after that because people started figuring out oh you know what makes a comic valuable is its rarity and if there's too many of them out there you know it goes into the 25 cent bin i remember like guys coming into the comic shops uh, one guy in particular looked like an executive wearing his suit and I thought there's no way he's going to read that it's just like I have it I have that number one and like you said they slide it right into the bag and yeah. I remember like parents coming in they came with their son and they like pick one out because you're going to have this till you go to college and it was like Spider-Man number one adjective with Spider-Man I'm like oh and now it's like try to sell that it's like uh, I got a bunch of them quarter box here's the analogy you gotta understand back then we're talking about early to mid 90s so that's post Reagan era Clinton's first go around we were still thinking like we were in the 80s where everything was you know monetarily valuable you know everything had a price tag just ask Robin Leach and so everything had an intrinsic value to the point where people started picking up even comic books and then grunge hit and then snapped everybody back into reality and now we've got post grunge and everybody's skeptical <laughs> it's amazing how we keep repeating ourselves it's like there was the baseball card boom and that busted then oh now comics and that busted it's still here but it's like people never learn you know well that's the nature of markets period designed to go up and down you know and there are people that are in charge of that to be honest you know and inflation is is not an intrinsic thing as much as it is just calculated you know in recessions all these things are designed to put spikes in markets and and uh and we're not in charge of that we just have to deal with it so we always go through ebbs and flows and rising tides lowing tides and i've been through it too career-wise so for you, how do you plan? Easy. I'm not rich. I'm not going to be rich. I'm happy that way. Okay. So keep it simple. I have low expectations, man. <laughs> My whole life is just like, okay, what can I afford this time? But I could go out and get a drink. I don't have to buy like, you know, <laughs> you know, boxed wine and bring it home. <laughs> no, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> I drink boxed wine. <laughs> I'm giving away too much. <laughs> Sorry. No, I, I hear what you're saying, though. Like, you just live within your means. Don't go, even if you're having like the gravy trains going great, uh, it's not going to last. So prepare. Exactly. You know, I, I, it's the one thing I learned is that it's during the, the high times is when you should be saving. So that's, uh, that's the one economic uh, lesson I learned. It was, a, you know, and, and as an artist, honestly, uh, we're in charge of what we make and we can be very ambitious and hack through the work and do a lot of issues and make the publishers very happy because they get their books out on time. Or we can struggle with our style, you know, with our own iconography and try to blow that up as much as possible, slow that down and sell a lot of great books, but periodically, you know, uh, it's, it's that balance. And, and uh, here's a little tidbit, you know, I probably even shouldn't say this, but you know, editors know who they're dealing with. They, they're not stupid people and they put things well ahead enough so they understand, OK, this guy's good for five issues a year. This is a 10 issue a year guy. This guy's only good for two issues a year. And they plan ahead, you know, who's going to fill in and things like that. So usually those things work out. But again, we're talking about an industry where people are worldwide, different time zones, and they all work at home. And things happen. So even your best laid plans can blow up uh, due to someone doing jury duty or a car. You know, I had a, I, I knew a guy, an inker, and I won't say his name because I don't know if, uh, if I have the permission to actually tell the story. But he actually had mold in his rafters that completely collapsed in his studio. 
so that's the kind of shit that can happen, you know? I mean, there's another guy, and I'll say this guy, this guy, uh, Frank Melton, I think it is. He uh, had a tree fall on him watching TV. Apparently, there was like a windstorm or a thunderstorm, and there was a tree outside in his yard, and it came right through his living room. He was pinned underneath it. Shit happens in the most bizarre ways in this industry. And, you know, everybody wants to think that, you know, we just work nine to five, and, you know, and then we spend the rest of the day playing video games, or we spend our day doing video games, and, you know, work, do video games nine to five, and then spend the rest of the day fooling around with artwork. It's not the case. People make the comics, and they have lives. They have no control over certain things. You do the best you can with things you can control, and then the rest, you just have to kind of hope. And you know, you made a good point about you could just sit there and crank out work and do anything or do your best work and challenge yourself and do a few things here and there. And that's the one thing you've got to really protect is your reputation. No one else is invested in you like you are. Your editor doesn't. I mean, I, I want to do, there was a, a video I had on tape on VHS. It was Harlan Ellison interviewing a bunch of people. He interviewed, he interviewed uh, Jean Girard, you know, I'm Wibius. He interviewed Frank Miller, Neil Adams, Dave Sim. Uh He interviewed him and a bunch of other people. I, I can't remember the entire list, but it was really cool. And Jean Girard, he, he would say, I'm going to do my, my best bad French impression. He says, uh, it is uh, the artist who is uh, uh, who's supposed to uh, push, push for these art. He's not the publisher, he's not uh, the public, he's the artist, you know. And he's right, because no one gives a shit about your work more than you do. And if you want people to enjoy that, you better put something into it. It's like a bank account. You can only withdraw what you deposit. And so, you know, like I said, the publisher is very happy to get the work out quickly. And I mean, Mike Carlin used to say there were two or three things you had to be. You have to be very good, very fast or very nice. Two of those combinations will work in the industry. Um, you can be an asshole as long as you're fast. They don't care. But if you're really good and really slow, you better be very nice. You know, don't give them a bunch of shit because you don't want to work with this inker or that colorist. You know. Hey, speaking of which, who do you like to work with the most? Me, myself, and I. <laughs> I've had a lot. I mean, I've been lucky. Now, I, I, Dave Simons was my first inker on Forgotten Realms, and he was wonderful because he cleaned up a lot of stuff that as a young artist really needed to be cleaned up. Um, and he showed me a lot of things. And he introduced me to things like that, and. Uh, and he still owes me a drink because he would do this to everybody. He would take somebody to like this bar he liked to go to as he met you and leave you with the tab. That was his way of getting you into the business. You inaugurated when you when you did that with Dave. Yeah, so I've had Dave Simons then. Uh, I've had uh, even Richard Space, you know, even though I got him the job because, you know, he was a, a co-student of mine. It's always something, you always learn something about yourself artistically because it's hard to translate inks or pencils into inks. And um, so you see where you affect other people, you see where their strengths are, you see um, where your strengths are, where you need to communicate more. So there is no such thing as a bad inker in my view. And I always felt that it's a tool, it's a, it's a, a sandbox. So everyone's in the creator's box. Everybody gets their name, so everybody gets to be artistic. So I've never really complained about anybody, really. I've always tried to take what I could out of it. and. You know, I always felt that my next job was going to be my best one anyway. And I still feel that way. So it's never about what you're doing now. I'm, it's always about what you're going to do next. So that's the way I always saw it. And that's just uh, probably the healthiest way really to do it. Because, again, you never know what these people have to do to get the job done or what they're dealing with. But look, I could say, you know, Mike Bears had so much success with Bear. And Bears are a fantastic artist, really good. He was actually a penciler. Uh, but for whatever reason, I guess he got a bit uh, typecast. 
and to be in an anchor and because he was so good and he actually made everybody else look that much better you know it's uh it was just the kind of thing that they relied on him to do and that's what he became you know uh, but he could do it all. He could he could pencil and 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 ink and I don't know if he could paint, but he did a lot of things. You know, there was uh, John Dixon who did Archer and Armstrong, and he fixed a lot of things for me too. Again, I was still young. I'd only been in the industry for like four or five years, so he was very good and 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 very uh, very helpful with that. Cam Smith, fantastic anchor. You know, Randy Elliott. He and I worked a lot together on, on Turok. I don't know. See, you know, if you've never noticed, if you've actually followed me, and not many people have, but. I'll say this, uh, if you have, then you know that I did my own covers. And the reason why is because I asked my editors if it would be okay if I were to ink my own covers, to which most of the time, unless I, you know, unless I was falling behind, most of the time I was able to do. And I felt it was good to keep my skill set sharp by doing it like that way. And, and it helped out because now I ink my own work, which has become necessary due to the impact of CEOs taking over the industry. Uh, when a CEO takes over a company, the first thing they do is to cost cut. So all of us had to deal with our, our page rates going down. And uh, an unfortunate part of that residue is because uh, we've elevated our standards. We have our children and everything else, this deposit and that deposit. We cannot, as pencilers, afford to have inkers. And so many of us are inking our own stuff now, and that's the reason why. You know, it's, it's just the way it is. That's how I became my own uh, personal inker. As far as colorists go, we did Amory Wars. For a, uh, an independent company, I don't know if anybody who's listening is a Coheed and Cambria fan, but they're a rock band, and the lead singer and guitarist has his own publishing company called Evil Ink Comics, and Evil, Evil Ink puts out something called Amory Wars, which is the lyrics of their music in comic book form. Their music is like this big epic tale, and his comic book is this big epic tale. That's what I did for them. And I worked with a guy named Emilio Lopez who did some beautiful stuff. He had a really good instinct, you know, had, had, had a richness and, and a depth to it. And he did a lot of cool things with Light Source that I really dug. So he was great. Nia Rufino, you know, a favorite of mine. She's, she's terrific. Brad Anderson, great colorist. You know, Tijana Wood, who was Wally Wood's wife. She colored me on Forgotten Realms. Everybody, really. I just say, you know, Bill Dunn is a good friend of mine. He's now working for um, Warner Brothers doing background paintings for animation. Mm. Yeah, and he's got his own uh, stuff, his own uh, website, Bill Dunn. Yeah, William, uh, middle name is Joseph. I think William Joseph Dunn. Check him out. He's beautiful paintings. He's a fantastic artist. So now he's doing that stuff. And, you know, Andrew Cavalt. Yeah, I, I do that. I can go on and on and name drop. I just don't want to forget anybody. Dave Micus was a great anchor, too. Well, now you're working on Bloodshot Rising Spirit. You're back at Valiant. You reached out to them and uh, got the gig. Yeah, well, yeah, I was in between. I was, you know, I had, I was with, um, I was with, could you give me some more wine, sweetie? Because I, I uh, my maid is now my assistant. <laughs> and thank you. You're very kind. You're I'm te- I, you know what it is? My phone is right now, it's charging against the wall and I can't get to the wine. <laughs> so... Hey, you enjoy it. Put a nice head on it. Very nice. It's the way I like it. Yeah. So what happened was, was that I was I was doing Amory Wars for a couple of years, and in this industry, they put thing they do things ahead of time. Okay. So remember, I was telling you about artists how they plan out, you know, who's going to be so many issues before they need to work. Well, the same things with scheduling and titles. And so I uh, I found myself after Amory Wars looking for work, and when that happens, you know, and things are already in motion, it's really hard to slip in. You know, occasionally they'll, uh, um, you know, they'll, they'll do an inventory story. At the time, I was, I thought I was going to be working with Keith Giffen because he and I worked together on his DC House of Horror, and I did uh, ten pages for him. He and I really 
get along and I really like his writing. And so uh, I was looking forward and he was looking forward to working with me on uh, Scooby Apocalypse. But over time, that book got canceled. And so we just didn't, as it happens in the industry, we just kind of, you know, end up on some, you know, current drifting away from each other. Uh, looking for the next thing. And in this particular case, uh, with nothing else going on, I, I uh, decided to look up Warren Simons, who at the time was a publisher of Valiant. But I was sending him emails, not getting any response. I'm wondering, well, what the fuck, dude? You, know, you don't want me now? What the hell? <laughs> it turns out that he's no longer the publisher and he wasn't getting his emails. <laughs> you know, so now uh, Rob Myers is the uh, publisher there. And uh, thank you. Um, oh, my goodness. This is what happens when you're 52. You can't remember people's names. <laughs> Yeah, I'm the same way. <laughs> but somebody on Twitter, I thought, oh my God, she's going to hate me and I'm going to have to give her a hug when I see her and let her know it's okay. Um, she was about to block me from the Valiant account so she realized who she was about to block. <laughs> because I, I, I just sent her a cryptic note. What, Warren? No love? <laughs> and she was about to block me and then she realized, oh, wait a minute. And she, she and I you know, started messaging each other uh, on Twitter. And then she, that's how I found out what was going on. And that Warren was no longer the publisher. And that Rob was. And, then, and I said, oh, well, you know, put in a good word for me. <laughs> and that's how I ended up doing Bloodshot. You know, it was just one of these things. that They were after me for many years while I was still doing Amory Wars, but I was not available. And then when I was, was available, they weren't available. The, that's the way it is in this industry. I'm surprised you didn't get a, a bounce back on the email or, you know, no longer here or something auto message. You would think, you know, maybe Warren thought it was funny. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, how far ahead have you read the scripts? I mean, I understand this is going to be a dark noir series. And I've seen some of your art. It looks great. So how far ahead are you working now? We're right up against it. In fact, I had to give up the last issue. My situation here is that I'm a single dad with an autistic child, a teenager. And anybody who's ever had an, an autistic kid, it's, it's a lot of time. I can no longer do monthly continuity. I can do short spurts, but I can't do like normal pace of like eight to nine issues a year um, was my old pace. I can't do that anymore, and especially since I'm inking, because now I'm doing twice the work. And this particular run, I had to I'm be doing the first two issues. But I'm going to be more, hopefully, entrenched in the Valiant universe beyond Rising Spirit. In fact, I've uh, called up uh, Rob and Carl Bowler, Bowler's my editor, and I've told them about some of the things I'm seeing. And it was, it was very symbiotic. I was, I was giving them my ideas for the company. They were saying to me, it's like you were in at the meetings because that's exactly what we want to do. So it's perfect. So I think I'm going to go in there and hopefully maybe I can play, you know, something along the lines of uh, Bob Layton or a... Um, Barry Windsor Smith, where I'm more part of the intrinsic nervous system of the company and not just an artist that they're hiring to do their characters. Since you are so busy, it's really tough for you. Are you going to be doing any cons this year? Any touring? or? I do have an agent, and yes, I... Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a lot of things have already been set in motion that I can't get out of. I'll be very busy. But if my editor's listening, chill. I'm bringing work with me. I <laughs> uh, will be at the con... I won't be partying. I'll be drawing. Now, when you're at the cons, are you taking commissions? Of course, yes. I do floor commissions. I try not to do things ahead of time as I am working on publishing work. And I try to separate the two. When, there's, when I'm in between jobs is when I hit my commissions list. Uh, some people try to get in contact with me to try to do things ahead of time. If I do have time for that, I do that because it's a hell of a lot easier than sitting there and, and not being able to pee when you have to. 
uh, because you're too busy drawing. But uh, yeah, I do floor commissions. I do have my pricing. Anybody who needs to get in contact with me, uh, if you go into the show, if you want to know what the prices are, you can contact me. Ragsagainstthemachine.net. Go that's my website. I don't normally go there a lot. Just go with the Rags Morales R page on Facebook. You can contact me at, at Rags Morales on Twitter and Rags and hashtags on uh, on Instagram. So you can, you can find me on a lot of places. Now, what's your most frequently requested commission? Hawkman. Yeah, yeah. Because you know, we did the longest run on Hawkman, which were you know I mean, the one thing with Jeff and Michael Bear and I, uh, Jeff Johns. We did twenty one issues of Hawkman. Which is at the time was the longest run of Hawkman consecutively. It beat Joe Kubert, it beat Murphy Anderson, uh, Shelley Moldoff, it beat everybody. So we were really proud of that. And in the two, I think two and a half years that we were working, we were the only creative team that didn't change. So we were very proud of those two things. We had the longest run, and we didn't have anybody come in and change the writer or change the artist or anything. We stayed on point. So yeah, that was really cool. But yeah, without question, Hawkman for sure. Now, what's the most unusual thing someone has asked for as a commission? <laughs> can you tell me? <laughs> oh, I can. How okay. is, is, this, is this podcast 18 and over? Uh, most likely. I can always put an E rating on it, but yeah, it's going to be older people. Okay. I put an E on this one because it's, uh, I did snake eyes balling a furry. Well, that's unusual. Hey, you know, you got to love the fan base. <laughs> well, at this point in the interview, I call it Kicking Back with the Creator, where we talk about fun stuff about you to learn more about you as a person. So oh. <laughs> it's a feature that's of the good. show. I have a baritone I'm with limited range. <laughs> what do you like to do, Rags, for rest and relaxation? Oh, God, is that is that even a possible? <laughs> Yeah, honestly, <laughs> listen, yeah. all right, all right. I'm a vegetarian. I enjoy cooking. I do. I like to do that. Um, everybody in my house eats my dinners for the most part. Uh, even though I have a tight five or six recipes, um, they do. I do the cooking. Uh, so I do like to do that. Honestly, <laughs> you know where I see myself like 10 years from now? Uh, hopefully, self-publishing, cooking vegetarian making my own clothing, living in a studio apartment, and making moccasins. There you go. That's me. <laughs> now, thinking back, or thinking more recently, was there a birthday that stands out in your mind? It could be a favorite. doesn't have to be a happy memory, but usually they are. Is there a birthday that stands out in your mind? October 21st, 1966. That's the day I came to this planet. Yeah, better recall than me. I, I just know they, they slapped me and I was pulled out. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> and they still slapped me to this day. day. It was very nice. It was a thunderstorm. Now, thinking back to middle school, you know, like teenager, 12, 14, what posters and or pictures did you have on your bedroom wall? Wow. All right. So you're talking about 1978. I had a poster of Susie Quattro. I had a poster of Joan Collins in the uh, uh, negligee. I had that uh, nipply uh, poster of Farrah Fawcett. Uh, who else? Jacqueline Smith. I always thought she was the prettiest of the angels. Uh, probably because I, you know, I, I probably prefer brunettes and blondes. Some artists. And I, I had Michael Golden up for sure. Yeah, I had Michael Golden up. I had um, Neil Adams up. And then I had sports. You know, I was a, I'm, a, I'm a Mets, Jets, and Knicks fan. So 
have pity and know that I had 80, well, it was 78. So I uh, would talk, maybe I might have had a Dave Kingman poster up or my favorite John Milner, eventually Mookie Wilson, my favorite Met. So I don't know. I had a bunch of shit on my wall. <laughs> I'm going to go back to when you talked about a dog that you had because you just reminded me of something else. I had a dog named Max. Ah. When I went to school, I took psychology. So I had a lab rat that I adopted and we named him Mookie. After the ah. baseball player. Honest to God, yeah. Because <laughs> he was fast, right? He was our pet in the dorm room, yeah. Yeah, he had a slightly above average batting average, right? He's a good yeah. rat. Yeah, about 273. <laughs> good for 10 home runs. Now, this is a hypothetical. This is the Desert Island book question. If you were stuck on a desert island... Oh. What is the one book you'd want to have with you for pleasure? This is not about survival. I was stuck on a desert island. Fuck the books. I hope I have a gun so I can blow my brain. <laughs> well, you're going to eventually get off the island. So to pass the time, either something you like to read, you can read many times, or something you're like, geez, I got to get around to reading this. The only way I want to read this is if I'm stuck on an island. Because I'm stuck on an island because God forbid if I have any free time, I um oh geez i can't even remember it's up on my uh facebook uh, art page i did an interview about books about what i like to read i'm not a book nerd as much as i would love to be during the 90s i was really really into jed cole he had a pulp fiction book called cheyenne about a half-breed indian who was uh, uh living amongst comanche was it was it the comanche i'm not sure i can't remember anyway i love that book I, I devoured that book as far as pulp fiction goes i love that uh, but mostly I, I like things that are just uh, biographies or autobiographies, you know. Uh, I've read Scar Tissue about Anthony Kiedis, and I also read Walk This Way by Errol Smith. And, uh, but I like anecdotal stuff, too. You know, I like things that are like, I love Khalil Gibran, um, Rumi. I have some Rumi. So I, I want to read uh, Archie Goodwin. This is what happened. I'm 52, and I'm, and I'm drinking wine as I'm doing this interview. Uh, growing Up Absurd. I've been wanting to get into that. There's also Death of the King. Smalley, I think, is the guy's last name. It's about it's about the last year of Martin Luther King's uh, life. I like nonfiction. I'm not a big fiction fan. I'm not going to sit here and talk about Stephen King. You know, I, I watch his movies. I don't read his books. Terrific writer. Great screenwriter. <laughs> um, but uh, you know, but beyond that, I, I really, I just, I just don't do a lot of reading. I, I wish I could. You know, but when you read scripts. Every day, all day, you know, the last thing you want to do is read something else. You know, if I was a writer, it'd be a different story, but I'm an artist and, you know, I like pictures. And this is another hypothetical. If someone were to make an action figure of you, what would be your accessory? Fuck you. <laughs> was, was that to someone off camera or was that for me? <laughs> that was for you. Okay. <laughs> My accessory? Yeah. I don't got accessories. I got superpowers. Okay, what's your superpower then? I'll be fucking invisible, man. Accessory. A tent pole of a dick. How's that for an accessory? <laughs> All right. Uh, well, my next question, I think I know the answer. Your beverage of choice, you're having it right now. Merlot. <laughs> Merlot, very good. Very good. I love, love Merlot. I'll, I'll, I'll go for a cab, Cabernet Sauvignon. You mm -hmm. know, I also like Pinot Noir, but Merlot is my favorite. Yeah. Yes, I lean towards Merlot. My wife leans towards the Cabernet, so I tend to get the blend. That way, we, everybody's happy. Yeah, as far as blends go, by the way, the 19 Crimes has a red wine blend. Oh. 
Good. Yes, we love that. Yeah. It's like a treat when I bring that home, when it's like, hey, put the box away. I got 19 crimes. Yeah. Yeah. There's an Australian pig that got drunk and beat up a cow. I fucking messaged them, 19 crimes. If this motherfucker is not on that label, you suck as an industry. I'm telling you right now. It was called, was it Swiney? Was it? Swino the pig. There was an, a news article they posted on the internet. It was Swino the pig. And apparently he's famous in Australia. Really? Because 19 Crimes is an Australian, you know, mm-hmm. uh, company. Yeah. And Swino apparently used to go into people's coolers and drink their beer and then get into fights with cows. And I was like, that's the most incredible thing I've ever seen or heard in my life. <laughs> That has got to be on the fucking label because, you know, they got this whole marketing campaign and get the app and then you, put, you you scan the label with the app person on the on the label comes to life, tells you this story. Right. Yep. I've done that. Yep. Swino, man, with Mel Blanc. <laughs> you know, I mean, come on. They're missing a gold mine with this. Them, them fuckers better follow through. What is the oddest job? you've ever had and i don't mean comics i mean just like something in between comics you know something summer job i bust tables at the seafood shack in uh ledgewood new jersey at 15 and i was busy just trying to clean up tables and you know pick up shit and one guy and i'm very naive again i'm 15 and one guy says to me uh could you go back and tell that uh, the cook that the soup sucks Yes, sir. The customer's always right. <laughs> so I'm putting the dishes back on you know, on the thing. I says, oh, by the way, table, I'll just, you know, whatever. Table 13 says the, the soup sucks. The cook, the chef looks at me and goes, you come back here with that shit one more time and I'll kill you. That was my last day. I'm not working with assholes. I'm sorry. I'm just I'm just a messenger here, dude. You know, I, I didn't realize that it was a faux pas. It was a social thing that was wrong to do. I'm fucking 15, dude. It's like my summer job. Fuck you. I'm doing this shit. Three dollars an hour. The hell with you. That's right. You can always get another one. They're not like they're rare or anything like that. Absolutely. <laughs> exactly. Now I could tell you when I got out of art school. Mm-hmm. Okay, and I've, I've said this story a million times. Certainly, I've said it to all my students, my former students. I'm no longer teaching. When I got out of art school, we didn't have computers. We didn't have conventions. I mean, there were conventions, but they weren't what they are now. It wasn't like you could just go to a convention and show off your artwork to an editor and hopefully get a job. So out of art school, the first job I did was a motor route, a newspaper route for the Star Ledger newspaper, New Jersey, northern New Jersey, Morris County. And I was delivering some 200 Sunday papers. You know, I had uh, over 100 daily papers. And the reason why I did that is because it was very little commitment. It was enough for me to put gas and pay for the insurance for my car. And it also gave me a daily want ad. So I would check the want ads every single day in the artist section trying to find an art job. And eventually I found something called a silkscreen artist. Must know a a stat camera. I knew that. I was taught that at Cuba School. Must know color separation. I can do that. And working with Amberlith and Rubylith and, and like, yeah, no, four, eight color process. That's easy. That's a, no big deal. Absolutely. I can do this job. I applied there and it was in Elizabeth, New Jersey. And Speed Limit was the company. And I got that job. And we were doing joggers and we would do like jogging pants and T-shirts and, and, and things like that. And the clientele was very, very impressive. We had Esprit and Benetton. We had Disney. We had New York Mets. We had New York Yankees. What we didn't have was the copyright. 
And so I knew, because I was educated enough to know that what we were doing was typically illegal. And But it's not my job. Look, in 1987, 1988, I'm making $10 an hour. That's decent pay. And so I was just like, you know, just keep your head down. Just do your job. You're not worried about legalities. That's for the owner to know about. So that's what I would do. And I, and, I, and I did a bunch of things, a Roger Rabbit, you know, blah, blah, blah. Christmas time, I get a catalog and emulate that. But, you know, I would change it because I knew, you know, copyright law. And so I would change it just enough so that it would be, you know, his and, and not theirs. And so one day I'm working and I'm at the end of a hall. At the end of the hall and the next door next to me is the owner's. His name was Mel. And Mel had an, had, a, had an office just a few feet away from me. And I'm busy working, and I hear Mel yell. Now, Mel always yelled. He was always yelling at his wife. His wife was named Enid. And he would, like, handle it, Enid. That's all I would hear day in and day out, you know, because his wife was, like, involved in the business. And, you know, and, and he was basically Archie Bunker and and, uh, and Dingbat. That's, that's the relationship. And for those of you who know uh, um, All in the Family reference, you know, Archie Bunker, and Dingbat was the relationship of Enid and Mel. But this particular day, one day, he's really screaming at the top of his lungs. No one in particular. There's no names. There's no Enid there. So I'm like, well, what's this all about, right? So I crack open the door. I look out down the hall. And there's a crowd of people in front of Mel's office. And in that crowd of people was a news camera. So I'm like, huh, okay. So I close the door. Check my quaff. Fix my hair, decide I'm going to walk past the camera to find out what's going on. So I go down the hall, make a left, go all the way down the court, all the way to the back where the production was. And I talked to my good friend, Sean. I said, Sean, he's head of production. He's the one in charge of making the T-shirt. I said, Sean, what's going on? I hear a bunch of yelling and Mel's like freaking out. And Sean says, well, you remember so-and-so, you know, who Mel fired? I go, yeah. Well, he blew the whistle on Mel. I was like, oh, yeah, it might be my last day of work. So I go back and I decide I'm going to go back to my office. And as I'm going back there, I'm looking around. Not only is there a crowd in front of Mel's office, not only is there a news, news camera, but there's like cops and undercover cops rifling through files in the front of the door, right where the receptionist is. I'm like, holy shit. Because it, was it, it wasn't like, it's not some posh New York City office, you know? We're talking about just some schleppy fucking place in Elizabeth, New Jersey, where the receptionist is right next to the sales department, which is right next to the art director, next to the cam camera and the producer, yeah, and, and the production area. So as you walk in, there's no walls. <laughs> you know, it's like a bunch of paper flying all over the place. And I'm trying to get back to my office, try to get some work done. Like, again, it's probably my last day. And they get a tap on my shoulder, and I look back, and there's a, an undercover cop. So Elliot Ness is tapping me on the shoulder, and he says, you work here? I go, yeah. And he says, uh, what do you do? I says, I'm an artist. I work in the art department. He goes, you know where the films are? Yeah, I know where the acetate is, and we have acetate artwork. Show them to me. At the time, my art director was my roommate, and she was getting her wisdom teeth taken out that day. So she wasn't in the office, so I had to go into her office and go into the office there's a bunch of like vertical slots, you know, a flat file, but vertical, right? And I get on my hands and knees and I start pulling out Benetton, Esprit, Banana Republic, everything that we were doing, all the artwork for it. And then there's a blast of light to my left. And I turn left and I look up and there's the Channel 2 news camera. 
I never saw the footage. I have no idea what I look like if I even look good. I hope I look good. But there's Channel 2's news camera, light right on me. And you never have that nervous laughter, you know, when you're like doing something you're not supposed to do, but you're caught, you know? And I'm pulling out, you know, Benetton, Banana Republic, Yankees, Disney. And I'm going, hey, 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 hey. <laughs> I give the man the artwork. I cover my head, you know, like every good perp. <laughs> As I walk past the, you know, the camera. And I head back to my office, you know, work on whatever the hell that was I was doing that day. And after it all blew over, I decided that it was my last day. I'm not going to be, I was 23 at the time. I was not going to stick around for this bullshit. And Mel, you know, said, fine, if you're going to leave, then take all your things. And he looked at me and I looked at him and he understood. And that's one good thing about Mel. Mel, Mel was a shyster and he was, you know, he was an outlaw. But he had a good heart, you know. Uh, maybe Enid wouldn't say that, but I thought he had a good heart. And he, he looked, he gave me that look. He said, you know what? I get you. I get it. I understand. You know, you could tell he apologized for what it was. And that was it. And then I got on the phone and I called somebody called Mike Chen. Mike Chen has been a cornerstone of the Joe Cuba School of Cartooning and Graphic Arts in Dover, New Jersey forever. He was a student when I was going to Saturday morning sketch classes in junior high. And he was a teacher after high school when I decided to go to the Joe Cuba school. And he was my contact. So I called Mike Chen. And Mike Chen was the one who gave me a bunch of names. He gave me, um, called me uh, uh, Andy Diggle. He gave me uh, Mike Carlin. He gave me Karen Berger. He gave me Barbara Kiesel. And there was another name in there I can't remember. Anyway, he gave me these people's numbers. And I called one. And as soon as I made an appointment for one, I called the other one, said, I'm going to be in this office that day. Could I please show you my portfolio? I had all these interviews lined up, and I did these interviews one at a time, and then my, my call was a year away, and blah, blah, blah. And But Barbara Kiesel, uh, Karen Berger didn't want me. Uh, Andy Diggle was like floored. He completely forgot. And so I was just like, yeah, we'll do this another time. Talked to Karen Berger, and she was on the way out to Wisconsin for um, Gen Con. Couldn't see me then, but come back in a couple of weeks and I did and I showed up and I showed her my work and she liked it well enough to give me forgotten realms and that's how I broke into the industry so it was actually serendipitous timing uh I'll be at a couple of weeks off but I was able to go from a slow screen artist to working for DC Comics for the first time in 1989 I've been there ever since well for 19 years of my 30 we're with DC, 15 consecutive. And of course, I've done work for Marvel and you know Dark Horse and Valiant. So that's my story. I appreciate you spending some time. And my last question is, is there a character, comic book character, that you want to do someday? Somebody that you want to draw that you haven't had a shot at yet? Captain Marvel. Not Carol Danvers. No, wrong. Billy Batson. Billy Batson. The original Captain Marvel. I haven't seen the movie yet. Mm -hmm. Me neither. I saw the other Captain Marvel, decent movie. I didn't see the uh, Shazam yet. Um, but that's the one character that I've gotten like little bits and pieces, you know, when I was working on JSA. But it's the one character that I didn't have enough time with and I wish I had more time with. Because I really, I really like the, I love the costume. Gone through some changes and I don't like the one they have now. You know, because I'm an old head, but that one, yeah, I like that character. And Spider-Man, I would love to do Spider-Man. They were a great Spider-Man. I would kick ass on Spider-Man, I'll tell you that right now. I would love to do the Invaders, but like, ah, oh, shit, Frank Robbins, mm -hmm. you know, World War II. Oh, yeah. 
you know, I don't want to do. Like, they did a new Invaders lately. I was eh, whatever, you know. I got that whole original run. I, I love that series. Yeah. That was, I was a big fan of that. I was a big fan of Spider-Man, Captain Marvel, you know. But I like odd characters, too. I did the Demon for Canterbury Cricket. Remember that awesome hit? I did Canterbury Cricket, and in there was the Demon. I love doing the Demon. I like odd characters. I love to do the Creeper. Even to do the Inhumans, I would like to do that, too, because they're odd. I, I like to go over the top a little bit, because I have, like, that illustrator kind of half illustrated half cartoony style uh, a bit of a hybrid so i think i could i have that kind of range i could probably do a captain marvel or an inhumans or invaders and actually do a decent job i think i hope so i would like to well rags it's been a real treat it's been the highlight of my day the highlight of my week this has been great i appreciate you so much time that's everybody he interviews <laughs> thank you so much for being on creator talks you bet thank you i appreciate the time and now let's go to creator corner where I talk with returning guest Dawn Griffin about her new project coming up May 13th, Ida Finds Her Voice. I'm here with Dawn Griffin. We're at the comic book shop where comics are for everyone. Just be nice. They're my sponsor, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> it's free comic book day. I was going to say, Dawn, there's a lot of nerds in here, but uh, but it's also it's made... our people. It's our people. It's May the 4th, too. You know, May the 4th. We're with you. Uh, you're here today at the comic book shop. Indeed, as Me- always. Meeting folks, selling books. You're a, a frequent guest during Free Comic Book Day. Yes, I think like past five, six years, something like that, I've been here. It's my favorite shop. It's a great shop. And I've shopped around, and I've looked around at other shops. Just, you know, I'm loyal here, but I just, just check and see what's out there. And nothing against anybody else. Mm-hmm. The attention, the, the kindness of the yes. employees, the way the shop's laid out, the fun. They have it. It doesn't feel sterile like a supermarket or yeah it's, it's got it's got some character to it and as I've heard um, other other people that have come by customers they've said they went to other comic shops and it was like it took them three or four times before anybody even spoke to them yeah when they came in. yeah it's just a lot of introverted people that that run it and they don't converse enough with the community and part of what this makes this shop so awesome is is they do so many community events yes like you know i used to go to a ladies night where they would have you know we would discuss books and you know, have a, a weekly reading list and then meet up and just discuss it and, you know lgbtq mm-hmm. groups um kids gaming all sorts of stuff that brings together the community and everyone wants to support the shop because they like that community aspect to and it. they work with the local library too right which right, is great they right. even have and some anything to help the libraries yes yes, yes for indeed sure. great place to start how have you been um i know you've been under some stress lately you were looking for some ways to relax i was actually scrolling through facebook that day and <laughs> did you try the meditation and bourbon that i suggested and by the way <laughs> that's not at the same time you know buddhists don't generally use mind-altering drink and smoke while they're meditating i meant that separately you can have a glass of bourbon or you can meditate. I might have to have the bourbon first and then try to meditate. <laughs> I'm not, I'm you not might sure. fall asleep. That's <laughs> that, that might be closest to meditation. Um, no, I think I, yeah. There's just a lot of lot of swirling things going on in my life, and um, sometimes it just feels like you can't catch a break mm-hmm. with anything. Oh, I know. And I know it, what you mean. Gets, yeah, it just gets exhausting after a while, and you, you kind of just want just take a step back from everything. And yeah. Um, yeah, so I've been kind of doing, you know, as they call it, self-care and all that stuff. I've been going on long walks and oh, you know, listening to music instead of podcasts, you know. Um, listen, what? You know, yeah. <laughs> I know, bad, bad move. No, no, it's Party right. foul. No, it's okay. Um, 
but you know, a lot of my podcasts might have added to my stress. Oh, okay. You know, sometimes it's well, too much news and podcasts oh, and things sure. like that. And sure. So I, I needed to just kind of remember, like, oh yeah, music makes you feel really good, and and you play, you know, play the right songs that can kind of bring out, bring out happiness, but also kind of bring out the sadness that you need to feel, you need to go through those feelings, and and I think that's uh, that's really important, but. I just want to say, here's a suggestion for you. Besides the Burman meditation, oh, yeah? get Traveling Wilburys Volume 1. Traveling Wilburys. Okay. You know, George Harrison, uh, Tom Petty, okay. uh, Will Everson, that little super group that got together. Okay, I guess I haven't heard of them. Oh, yeah. it's, a, it's like 1987, okay. 1988. It's a really, for most of the songs, upbeat, fun, happy. Like if I'm ever in, like in a kind of a down mood, that one just picks you right up. It really oh, okay. is. It's a really good... Anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt, but if you're looking for something that more uplifting in terms of music... Yeah, yeah. Check that out. Anyway. Okay. Sorry. <laughs> good tidbit there. Or huh? meditate, play the music, and then drink some bourbon. And be really happy. Okay, got my checklist. <laughs> Good to go. <laughs> but yeah, so... Um, also, uh, throughout this, this whole struggle, I've been trying to figure out ways to use my talents and... Because uh, I did retire my long, my long-term uh, comic strip, mm-hmm. and I'm writing slowly, ever so slowly, writing a graphic novel series um, that I want to see if I can get um, submit to publishers. Uh, maybe get an artist rep first okay. to work with me to submit it to publishers. Um, but while I'm still working on that, because that's a big undertaking, and writing. Um, just writing by itself is not something I like to do as much as drawing. Mm-hmm. But I think I do have a good story for that. But in the meantime, I kind of stumbled into this new project, which is what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and working with some local um, activist friends of mine, um, we decided to put together a kids' book. And we're going to kickstart it. And this is what I'm really excited about working on now. Oh, it's do been, tell. It's been a good distraction from all the other, you know, stresses in my life as well. But reminding me of the things that I'm passionate about that can override those stresses and you can put your energy into and um, so yeah so this um, this Kickstarter will launch um, May 13th 13th. and it is for a children's book called Ida finds her voice and it's about uh, a little girl named Ida that goes to her day and she kind of notices in her little kid way she notices things uh, like prejudice or bigotry, racism, or just mean kids being bullies, you know. Um, but not just kids, adults too. And being that she's this little girl, she doesn't really understand why, where it comes from. She just knows that something in her stomach tells her that she doesn't like it. And so, through the help of her parents, um, you know, she, they kind of help her understand how to make her voice heard in her kid way. And at the end of the book, they end up going to a march all together where she can hold up a sign to show this is, this is the message that I want the world to hear from me. And, you know, this little, this little girl has, finds her voice at the end. And it's, it's a really great way for parents and kids to discuss those tough topics, mm-hmm. but in a kid way. Yeah. So, because I think a lot of parents want to talk to their kids about it, but they don't want to expose them to all the nastiness in the world right away. It's too much. It's too much. Too much. Take in. Yeah. But this is an easy way for little kids that might have noticed these things on their own too, but didn't know what to say or how to handle it. And 
So I think it's a it's a really good message, and it, it makes me feel really good about putting my energy into it because it's something to, to really help change the world, change the conversation. So I like that. I, I think it's a great idea because I have uh, two little ones, two and seven, and you know they're starting mm -hmm. to ask questions, especially the seven-year-old, about yeah. some of these things. Like, why did somebody do that? Why were they doing this? Like right. mean things and, and violence. Exactly. And how do you get into all that can of worms? But this is a great not way to... not saying anything can be just as damaging right. as going overboard about it. So yes. how do you find that middle ground? And, and that's what this book is, entails. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, I mean, I think anybody who has kids these days, they might see things that happen. And yeah, this is something that um, the two activists that I worked with, um, one is a PhD, and she said that she talks to a lot of parents, and Excellent. that's what she hears a lot right now. She's good. She's good. You know, is how do I have this conversation with my kids? I feel like just telling them it's okay, don't worry about it, isn't enough anymore. Right. Yeah. So. That's great. Wow. So your <laughs> authors are. Kate Anderson she, Foley, she's the PhD. Yes, yes, Kate Anderson Foley and her uh, cousin, they're both cousins, huh. Jennifer Anderson Smith. And um, so Jennifer lives in Havertown with me um, and uh, Kate actually lives in uh, Cleveland, Ohio, which is just by total coincidence, my hometown. <laughs> <Really>? <laughs> I don't know how that happened exactly, but um, I consider it a sign. Um, so. Um, so I met Jennifer because she's a fellow activist in the same group that I am in and she and her cousin were talking about this and when she saw the kind of work that I did she said would you want to, to join us and do the illustrations for this book and I said yes of course this is exactly what I need to work on um, right now and um, so yeah it's, it's a lot of me putting um, putting my skill set to use in a way that's, um, that I'm really passionate about right now so Great. In a very positive way. Well, you have a, a URL to go to here after the 13th. So I will after put, the 13th, it yep. will be live. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I'll put so. that in the podcast notes. That'd so be that good. people can just click on that. Yes. And so that's going to run for about 30 days as most kids do. About 30 do. days, yeah. You can just Google Ida Finds Her Voice after the 13th. I'm sure it'll come it's, up. Yeah. <laughs> and so what kind of backer rewards do you have? in mind. Have you had all that figured out yet? Oh yes, okay. we have it all, all figured right. out. We're, we're getting we're getting down to it and we have to make sure we submit it to Kickstarter and all that. Mm -hmm. um, so we are actually um, working with a fourth person now. This is going to be the fourth woman to our woman team here. It's putting it all together which is pretty cool. And it's someone that I did a Kickstarter with in the past as well. Ah. Um, so she is a seamstress. Her name's Gina. And she is going to make, um, to go along with one of the rewards levels, make a little plushy owl. Because Ida has a little sidekick named Smalls. Mm -hmm. And it's her favorite little trusty plushy that she carries around with her all everywhere. And he's this little owl, has like a goofy little propeller hat in his head. <laughs> and um, so Gina is going to make little plushy owls um, so that if you want to get the book, you can also get the plushy owl to go with it. So okay. that's a really fun level. Um, but there's all the standard levels, like you can just chip in a solidarity pledge. Mm -hmm. um, you can get the PDF book, you can get the soft cover book, um, book with, owl, with the little owl smalls. Um, and as you go up, the highest level is really cool. Um, because not only do you get the book, you get the, the PDF to go with it, you get 
all the exciting stuff that kind of leads up to it. But you also get to be part of the book. Okay. So at the very end of the book, um, as I mentioned, there's the, the big march that everybody gets to go on and hold up their sign and make their voice heard, right? And that's where Ida finds her voice at the end. She has her own has her own uh, sign and everything. But since I haven't drawn this yet, <laughs> what people can do when they sign up for the, the, the top pledge um, is they will actually be able to submit their picture to me and I will draw you, the backers for this level, I will draw your face in the crowd and you'll get to choose what sign you want to hold. Oh, cool. So you'll become part of it. And even if it's not you, you can have your kid be a part of it or your pet, a loved one, anybody that you want to be part of the book. You can submit their picture and I will draw that person as part of it. So we were really excited about that level. Because it could surprise somebody. It could be a gift for someone. Exactly. It would be a really personal, special gift. Um, and yeah, so we're really we're really stoked about that level. That's great. I yeah. like that. Very creative. I mean, yeah. When you work with the artists, these are the kind of things you can do. <laughs> so yeah. Okay. Well, that's Ida Finds Her Voice, May 13th. After that's when we start, you want to see it on Kickstarter, Google mm -hmm. it, it'll come right up. Indeed. Ship in, do what you can, and tell people about it. Share, spread the word about it. It's, someone, it's probably custom made for someone. It'll help people that are dealing with these issues with their kids. It'll help them find a voice to speak about these issues in a, an appropriate level, something that they can understand, something they can relate to, and help make it a better place. You know, Stop, stop the trouble before it starts at a young age. It's really, it's really yeah. good for these kids to understand how to, how to talk to their parents about things yes. that make them uncomfortable. So why not lead them to do that when they're at the youngest age and they know that they can, when they're struggling with something, they're having a difficulty with something or they're not, they don't like a child in their class because of how they're treating other people. Mm -hmm. They know how to verbalize yep. that. And that's, this is a good way just to start along that path because they're going to, kids growing up, they're always going to have something that they don't understand, something bad that happens. They're going to go through that. So it's really encouraging parents to talk to their kids and kids to talk to their parents both, both ways. Yes. Put down your tablets, put down your phones for a while, mm -hmm. turn off the TV, read with your child and then have a discussion. Yes, exactly. Open and that's that dialogue. A, a good skill set for kids to learn. <laughs> that way when they get older, you'll keep that dialogue going. They'll come to you and talk to you. They won't just say bye. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, exactly. I think that's, yeah, it's, it's just a little, it's a little trick for, yes, to kind of get you into that mode. So I really like, I really like it and I'm hoping that it gets funded. I hope so too. Yeah. And we have a stretch goal as well that if Ooh. you want uh, we would love to be able to upgrade all these books to hardcover. Mm -hmm. So that's our big stretch goal, um, if we could hit it. Um, that we'll be able to go in and convert all the books over to being hardcover. Um, because I know at a young age, kids will tear things up. <laughs> yes, they do. <laughs> so this would help with that. <laughs> but um, yeah, so I'm, I'm super stoked. Well, best of luck to you, Don. Oh, thank you so much, Chris. Yeah. Thank you. All right, folks, so look in the show notes for the URL to find out about Ida Finds Her Voice, and that's starting after May 13th. So I will put that link up so you can find the Kickstarter, or just Google it, and you'll find Ida Finds Her Voice. Well, as I said, there are a lot of changes going on here at Casa de Calloway. Uh, what's happening is we are moving. Yes, you've heard me talk several times about the Southwest and how it's a place we love the vacation. We've gone there just about every year, year and a half for the past 10 years. 
And so we are making the move to Las Vegas. I'll be living in northern Las Vegas. I'll be arriving there in June. So the episodes will continue to flow throughout the month of May. I have interviews lined up and some already recorded for your listening pleasure. And then once I'm situated in Las Vegas, the episodes will be coming out about twice a month, every other Thursday. That way I can continue to bring you solid, fun interviews, in addition to having some Creator Corner features added to those Creator Talks interviews. I'm also excited because the acoustics of the room I have planned as my studio, I've checked it out. It's much better, and it's fully carpeted, which will help a lot. There's no train that runs behind my house. There's no I-95. It's just mountains. So we are all very excited about it, looking forward to the move, but it's going to be very, very busy. Plus, I'll have a new job out in the Southwest. Uh, I haven't talked about this on the show, but I've been out of work for about a year. My position was eliminated with the media company I used to work with, and I've done some part-time work in the past month or so, and I've enjoyed that very much. But I managed to find something out in the Southwest uh, just by chance. Actually, wasn't even trying. Just looked, and there it was. And it was like I was being called to go there. Everything was falling into place. So things have worked out after a long year. It's been great being able to spend time with my family and more time with my youngest son since I was taking care of him part of the day. And I've managed to keep reading comics one way or another. I've had to part with some, some of my more recent comics, but having traded those and getting credit for some, I've managed to build up some of the back issues of my collection, my favorite Silver Age and Bronze Age comics, some of which you see on Instagram at Creator Talks Pod and on Twitter and Facebook. And I post those on Saturday, the Silver Age, and Sunday, the Bronze Age. So I'm still able to read comics, read current comics, but really focus on building up my back issue collection because I'll only have so much space in the new place. Uh, in my current house, I have a half basement. I have shelving for my books. Where I'm going, there are no basements. There really is no attic because you really don't want to put anything in the attic when it gets to be 110 degrees out, but that's okay. Quality over quantity, I always say, and there's always digital, so I can keep up with current comics if I don't have a place to purchase them or store them when I get out west, and which is fine because I do love the print medium, I do love reading books in print, and I will keep doing that, but I'll also be reading books digitally, which I do now, so I can keep reading current comics and keep looking for those back issues I love to read and buying some current print ones as well. And also, I know some of you face the same challenges of, oh, the budget for spending on comics, and oh, where do I put all these and take care of them? So I have to be much more careful about how I do that. I have to have a focused collection because I love comics and I love my wife. So my executive co-producer will reel me in when I go over budget with buying comics, new and old. It's always good to have that person there that's your check and balance. But I do have to thank her because she does tolerate me collecting and talking about comics. Anyway, I digress. So that's what's coming up. Again, the show won't really change other than the frequency twice a month, every other Thursday. Still bringing you great interviews. Still having Creator's Corner where I can have additional interviews added to the show. Not as long, but maybe 10-15 minutes with a returning guest or someone new. Again, you can follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Creator Talks Pod. Contact me directly via email, contact at creatortalks.com. That's contact at creatortalks.com. This show is available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, YouTube, Amazon Alexa devices, and now on Spotify. And as I always ask each week, please rate and review the podcast on iTunes and any other podcast that you enjoy and you want others to find and listen to and enjoy. It goes a long way to helping the show get found among the thousands of podcasts that are out there on every possible subject you can think of. 
I hope you enjoyed free comic book day and did buy some comics at your local comic book shop. I picked up some at The Comic Book Shop, the sponsor of the show, and I got some really cool books. And I want to get back to those right now. So enjoy your comics and be good to one another. For Creator Talks, this has been Christopher Calloway. Until next time.